we're kind of making it up as we go as far as time-wise at this point, but uh, um, so it's really up to you how, how many questions you'd like to ask, I think, um, but maybe we'll take, we'll plan to take 10 or 15 minutes for questions, and then afterwards there are some refreshments downstairs, um, but, uh, and we can do this a couple ways. We can run around with a microphone for them or else you can repeat the question. We want to, we are recording this, so we want to make sure we capture the question so that those who weren't able to join us tonight can understand. Um, which Do you have a preference? you want to repeat the questions? or I, I'll, I'll run. I'll run. How about that? So if you've got a question, I'm going to get my work out tonight. We'll, we'll start in the back here. Just um, really blown away by your story, your love for one another, your love for the people in Liberia and all of the work you've done and I just want to say thank you so much and you're such an inspiration for me and so many others I'm sure but can you just um, Rick go over some of the specifics as to uh, the, the people what's happening there now I know you just went over it a little bit but give us a picture of what um, is there are there just a few doctors left? Are there just a few nurses that are in the hospitals? How many are sick? How many? What's sort of happening? Can you just clarify that? Well, well, I think the big, you know, the we've lost, probably Liberia has lost about 100 healthcare workers total, about 10 physicians and 90 nurses. Um, but the trouble is they, they didn't have enough doctors to begin with, so even losing 10 is a big loss. And then you have this Situation where, like, one of the guys who used to work at ELWA, one of our key, the key members of our call schedule and, and one of our key staff, is now heading up a big Ebola treatment unit somewhere else. So you have people being pulled out of general health care into the Ebola treatment side of things. And so you don't have enough people left to cover shifts and, and, uh, and do the work at, at general hospitals. Um, you know... Roughly, roughly 6,000 people probably have died now in West Africa, so in the three countries um, of Ebola. But that leaves millions of people who are still alive. So, you know, it's not like... And the situation is better now, especially in Liberia. Like, you don't have Ebola patients laying on the road outside of the gates of treatment centers. Right now, there's space in treatment centers. People are getting in when they come. So that situation is better and people are amazingly resilient, going about their lives, trying to scrape together what they need to feed their families. Um, you know, a lot of money is coming in, of course, from over here. Liberians who live in the States or in Europe are sending money home to their families. And that's keeping the economy afloat, to be honest, because a, a lot of things have stopped and aren't functioning. Um, so that's where things are at. I mean, the biggest issue right now. I mean, you've got the Ebola situation and they're still having, you know, cases, new cases every day, but it's probably down to half what it was, at least in Monrovia. Um, but the biggest problem is the, the general healthcare situation. People don't have anywhere to go when they have malaria, when they have a complicated pregnancy, if they have high blood pressure, they don't have anywhere to go. And that's what the next phase of this sort of recovery and response, I think, is to try to get hospitals and clinics open. ELWA is operating at probably about half capacity right now just because people are still reluctant to even come. Oh, that's the place where all the Ebola patients are. Some people don't want to set foot on our campus because they don't understand. But they're very separate. The 
Yeah, right. They're separate enough to be totally safe, but people are still, you know, a little nervous. Some people are reluctant to come. Some people don't have money to come. They're afraid to even get in a taxi to come. Transportation is an issue because of, of fear. So all those things are happening. Rick and Debbie, thank you. I uh, just have a question about here in America. We're all hearing in the news about the nurse up in Maine, and we don't know what to believe and what's going on. So I'd like to hear your opinion of what's going on, where you're a survivor, and is there any danger, and what's what? Um, okay. The, I mean, the, the, the facts here... Uh, are fairly clear. I mean, I know Ebola is new in America, so people feel like we don't know much about this thing. But research has been been being done on Ebola for 40 years in Africa as these various outbreaks have occurred. There's always been a response from the CDC, from different universities and researchers who go over and, and keep tabs on things very closely. And so there is a fair amount known about, about Ebola. The the facts are that are really important to remember. Number one is that people who are not sick do not spread the virus. And, you know, there are lots of questions about that. But, well, okay, here's, here's, so here's a couple of points to make about that. People who are not sick don't spread the virus. Number one, my friend who had dinner with me two hours before I got my fever, he's fine. Okay, number two. Uh, Thomas Eric Duncan's family, who lived with him even in the first couple of days when he was sick, for two days in the same apartment, they didn't get sick. The further along someone gets in the course of their Ebola sickness, the more contagious they become. So it's not like that the moment they develop a fever, they suddenly become extremely contagious. But that's the first moment when they could become contagious. Until then, they don't have virus in their bloodstream. It's just incubating somewhere in some cells. It's not available to be spread to others. Um, so it's really important to recognize that. People who are not ill don't pose a threat. Um, number two is that, you know, if somebody is more than 21 days from any possible exposure to Ebola, they are safe. They're not going to come down with this thing. So if somebody came from Africa two months ago, from, what, from one of those three countries, yeah, I'll talk about that in a minute, from one of those three countries two months ago, you don't have to worry about them. They, they've passed their 21-day possible incubation period. They're totally safe. You know, and if, even if they do get sick with a fever, you don't have to worry about them. It's a cold. It's the flu. It's something else. Um, so this is really important. The other thing to realize, I know that some people are worried about Africans in general. You don't have to worry about Africans in general. Okay? Um, like... We've heard stories that people from East Africa have been being, you know, refused to come to an event or to, oh, because you might have Ebola. Somebody from, you know, Tanzania is being declined attendance at some conference because you might have Ebola. Do you know how far Tanzania is from Liberia? That's the same distance. That's further than it is from here to Anchorage, Alaska. Okay? Really? Africa is huge. <laughs> so for Ebola to, you know... It's like, oh, there's this guy who's contagious in Massachusetts. Do I have to worry about this in Alaska? No. So, you know, other Af people from other African countries where you haven't heard about Ebola are fine. Don't worry about them. Um, 
Yeah, the other thing is, you know, it, it's not spread, you know, if I touch the chair and then you touch the chair, it doesn't spread that way. It's, it's, it's blood and bodily fluids. It's close contact. Most of the cases, especially early in the epidemic, and I don't know, I haven't seen more recent data, but early in the epidemic, over 60% of the cases in Africa were caused by contact with dead bodies because of the funeral practices where they wash the bodies. You know, it's, it's close contact with blood and body fluids, uh, you know, with, with uh, a very sick individual. That's how this virus is spread. And people say, well, how did those nurses get it? Well, you know, they're starting IVs. They're dealing with, they're dealing with vomit and diarrhea and bodily, they're dealing with that stuff. And, you know, it gets, gets in a little spot between your glove and your something, or you, when you're taking off your clothes, you don't, you wipe a little something on your skin by mistake, and then you rub your eye, and there you have it. Okay, but that's different than the contact we have in a restaurant or on a subway. You hear people talking about it on the subway. No, nobody's going to get this on the subway. <laughs> so, you know, in, in response to the girl from Maine, to the nurse in Maine, she's not a risk to anybody as long as she's not ill. So I, I think she should be free to go about her business. That's my opinion. The governor of Maine has his opinion. So. You know, as long as she's monitored. I mean, I, I agree with the – I'm totally in, in line with active monitoring. You know, get public health there. Check the temperature twice a day. You know, monitor for any signs of illness because that's when it becomes contagious. Absolutely. First of all, I would like to praise the Lord. He gave you the courage to go back to Liberia. And I need, I have a question. Are they uh, searching for a vaccine for Ebola? Uh, They're working on that? Yes. And uh, how long has Ebola, the disease, has been? How long it has been? Um, first outbreak, 1976. We never it, heard that from uh, 1976 about Ebola. Well, I... I, I heard about it. So. <laughs> you are a doctor. Because you are a doctor. We never heard about Ebola. The outbreaks, the, the previous outbreaks have all been small in rural areas in Africa and have been confined to one place and have not lasted very long. You know, they, you know 75 cases, 150 cases, sometimes as much as 400 or 500 cases. But that's been it. They've never reached this kind of crisis level. On the issue of vaccines, I understand that vaccines are already now being deployed in the first phase, which is just safety testing, where they try them on healthy people and see if they're safe. That's underway now. Uh, they hope to start testing them in healthcare workers by the end of the year. You know, by, by December, they hope to start some of those tests. They hope to have results maybe from initial from an initial trial by April on a couple of these candidate vaccines. So that's good news because that would make such a difference. If we could protect our healthcare workers, wow, such a difference. Thank you. Hi, I don't really have a question. I just have a comment. Um, I just never forget the night that I'm making dinner and the TV's on, and all of a sudden I see you, Debbie, on WBZ praising Jesus. <laughs> And it just made me stop everything and raise my hands. It was so clear he was your strength. 
Um, and it was so inspirational. And I just wanted to thank you for that. On uh, on Wednesday when the news came out that it was Rick, we had, you know, news trucks up and down the street. It was pretty crazy. And I really was intending to not talk to the media personally. But in the middle of the night, I did not sleep very well that night. And in the middle of the night, the Lord woke me up. And, I mean, the words that I spoke on Thursday were literally already in my head. They were literally there Pretty much, I sat down, I finally got out of bed about four in the morning, sat down at my computer and pretty much verbatim what was in my head went down on the paper and I think other than a few little editing tweaks, that's what I said. And uh, it, the timing of it was amazing because there were some different things going on and it kind of had to be a hit right at five o'clock, which of course meant they all had to carry it live. So live and unedited, which was, you know, that was great. So because <laughs> they love to edit you, let me tell you, you never know what they're going to what they're going to pick out. So I just really praise the Lord for that. It was um, it was a moment from him. Honestly, there are some moments over the last few months that I look back and I'm like, well, I was completely carried through that by the Lord because I don't even remember where those words came from. So, so praise the Lord. It was really a strength from him. Uh, yeah. Um, he's asking whether uh, having had Ebola gives me any immunity or gives one any immunity uh, from future infection. And the answer is yes, as long as the strain is the same. So uh, I've been told that I'm highly unlikely to be vulnerable to Ebola, the Zaire strain, which is the one that is active now in West Africa, again. So in that sense, I'm safe. Some people have said to me, oh, well, that means you could just go into the Ebola treatment unit and work without the gear on. That would be much easier. Um, I actually would not do that, and I would never relax the protocols. And the reason is because as a physician, and especially as somebody who's worked at ELWA for 20 years, everybody looks at me as a model. And, you know, in, in, in among the staff, your actions speak way louder than your words. So they're going to watch what you do, and they're going to tend to want to do what you do. So I really have to continue acting like I'm vulnerable just to keep that model going and to be a good example and, and a good set a good protocol. But uh, they tell me that uh, I'm, I'm immune. So. Thank you very much for a nice presentation. I want to ask uh, one thing that I would wonder about is when did I touch my finger to my nose or to my eye? And I wonder whether... You have guilt about that, or you just accept that that's probably what happened? Uh, do you do you ever think about what what protocol violation? Because of course, uh, I think it was Tom Frieden of the, uh, the CDC said that the nurse made a mistake in Dallas and uh, she didn't follow protocol. But getting in and out of surgical gear, which I do also, I find that uh, it's hard to know when you did something. We'll say. One of the things is that the protocols we were trained on 
uh, even at, right at the beginning of August, by the WHO, proved inadequate for this complex and difficult a, a, uh, an epidemic. Um, they used the first, the first question you wanted to know was, is there a history of contact with Ebola for this patient? Because that puts them in two different risk groups. Well, the trouble is, Liberians won't give you that history, not on day one anyway. Now, after you've cared for them for a couple of days, they'll tell you, oh, actually, doc, you know, my aunt, my aunt died two weeks ago. But they won't tell you that in the emergency room. They won't tell you that when they come in. They'll tell you later. So that whole first dichotomy that the triage protocol uses, you have to throw it out. You can't use it. But that was what we were trained on, and that was what we were asked by the health ministry and the WHO to be using during August. Right, but the history is unreliable. So the second thing was that they didn't account for patients like pregnant women, HIV-positive people, people with other illnesses like diabetes, poorly controlled diabetes or other things, who might not develop a fever when they had Ebola. There are several women who died during the second week or second or third week I was there who were very, very ill when they arrived. But none of them had a fever. None of them had classic Ebola signs and symptoms, but one of them, at least one of them, clearly had Ebola because I came down with it. So we weren't wearing the full, I mean, because we were not in the Ebola unit. We were at the hospital. We were, you can't get through a whole shift in full PPE. You can only work for about an hour, hour and a half at a time in that stuff in Liberia's heat. So we weren't wearing full PPE, um, but we tightened up now. So now if somebody's ick, still at, sick at all, we we go to a much higher level of personal protection. So we've, we've learned. We've learned a lesson. What role is the uh, military have at uh, Elwa? Uh, are they do, uh, helping at all the American military that we, talk, we hear about? Um, um, I know that the, the hope is that we would eventually be able to use uh, logistics, especially for getting stuff from here to there, that this concept of them providing uh, transport. Unfortunately, I don't think that's really a reality yet. Um, they're not, they're mainly building new treatment units in different rural locations so that each county will have its own treatment unit instead of people trying to be shipped a long distance. I don't think, I don't think they're working in Monrovia that much right now. I think they're mainly out in other areas. So I haven't heard anything about them being involved at ELWA. We'll take maybe one or two more questions, and then. Uh, yeah. Hi, my question has to do with what kind of protocol or preparation EWLA is giving volunteers that come to volunteer in terms of um, medical protocol for protection and preventing of themselves contracting. Um, Ebola or then passing it on. Um, and the reason why I ask this is there was an article in last week's Atlantic Monthly. About written by an infectious disease specialist here in the States commenting how the U.S. used to have a protective unit for Ebola when the Ebola monkey outbreak happened, like I think that was like 20 years ago, and he's saying that that lab has unfortunately since been closed down, but he was emphasizing the point that it wasn't just that there was a protocol, and he was addressing that issue how these nurses in Dallas had been infected, saying that it wasn't just that there was some written protocol somewhere, but having worked at that lab himself, every day you practice this protocol. 
And, and that was what was so important. And that just made me think about what you're just saying yourself in terms of like how you wouldn't even realize you might be coming in contact with someone with Ebola. So I'm wondering what EWLA might be offering for future volunteers or even current volunteers in terms of a protocol that's practiced and gets internalized so that this doesn't happen. Right. Thanks. Absolutely. Again, um, again, the key one key issue is are we talking about the Ebola treatment unit or are we talking about the hospital? The hospital people are not wearing PPE for most patients. You know, you do the triage and you figure out who's at risk and who's not at risk. But, but yes, all the members of the hospital staff have been through training. I mean, not only, I mean, really volunteers and Liberian staff would be treated the same. You do training, you do hands-on, you get monitored, you get observed, doing it, putting it on, taking it off. Um, one of the mistakes we made was that in the general hospital, we did not have a dedicated full-time person there to help people get undressed. That was a mistake we made in August. Part of that was due to short staffing, and part of it was due to our confidence in this triage protocol. We said, well, if anybody looks like Ebola, we're going to send them to the treatment unit. We didn't realize how many people we were going to have who were like, hmm, it could be. We better, you know, and again, that was something we learned along the way. But now we have a full-time person on in the hospital all the time who's there to help people get undressed, spray them down with bleach, monitor, you know, watch the steps. Uh, so that's all, you know, that's all being done. And again, it's, it's, uh, it's been a bit of a learning process. I think we did things pretty well at the treatment unit from day one. It was figuring out how much risk there was in the hospital and where it was that, that changed over time. Hi. Uh, I was just thinking about um, if there's any particular vulnerability for the children, either if they're more susceptible or being made orphans, or what's what's the situation for kids who are vulnerable anyways? Um, I actually think in terms of survival, they do better. Um, we have a lot of kids who've come out of the unit, survivors from Ebola. Um, but obviously... I mean, there are lots of there are a lot of Ebola orphans right now. I've heard numbers ranging from a thousand to four thousand, um, and I think that's depending maybe on whether they lost both parents or whether they lost only one. I think the four thousand number was the number of kids who's lost one parent, and the the one thousand was kids who didn't really have a home to go home to anymore. Um, yeah, and that's the other thing is that nobody wants those kids when they do come out of the unit and they're well and they're cured. Everybody's like. You know, there's a there's a lot of stigma for them, and so it's requiring a lot of work going into communities and finding homes, finding host homes, and doing a lot of preparation around that. UNICEF, I know, is doing a lot uh, with that right now. They have a big project going on in Liberia right now with that. We'll take one more question, Paula. I thank the Lord for your faith, for your courage, and for taking the time. I, I'm sure you could have spent it with your family, um, but thank you for coming out to speak with us. Are all the patients receiving the same treatment, um, and why were you chosen to be brought back to the United States? Do any of them have the same um, availability to come to the U.S.? Um, you know, as a... I mean, as a medical missionary, I have evacuation insurance. Uh, 
disability insurance, health insurance here. You know, it's a matter of figuring those things out. And I guess, you know, obviously, I my my heartfelt prayer and my earnest everything I'm doing is oriented towards getting the people in West Africa a higher level of treatment. I'm trying to get equipment. I'm trying to get volunteers. I'm trying to get medications. I'm trying to get things over there so that we can do better. That's my and that's my prayer is that we can do better. But I'm. Oh no, far from it. Absolutely, very, very, very far from it. Uh, the treatment units right now in in West Africa have no labs, for instance. Whereas I was having lab tests done every day in Nebraska. Um, so even just that basic level, you have to realize that the healthcare system in these three countries is, you know, if, if USA is up here, their level of care is down there. I mean, people don't even, you don't even have providers who have the expertise to provide that level of, of treatment to, to a large extent. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's thank Rick and Debbie so much for spending time with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.